Hey everybody, it's the Bucketcast, hosted by yours truly, BucketReviews.com, film critic and podcaster, yes, podcaster Danny Baldwin, and today on the show I'm joined by your now regular co-host, Michael Hurt, my locker, Lester. Danny, I really never know what to say when you uh, drop this over on me now. Oh, you know you're rehearsing things like this all the time. So, uh, (laughs) Michael, you've been doing uh, lots of movie watching lately, I take it? Uh, I'd like to think so. Forced by me, in some cases. A little bit. I'm but, thinking but of, now now I've had the motivation to go see Crazy Heart, which I've been putting off. So. No, I'm talking about another picture that you were a little bit worried about seeing. I was uh, concerned. I really did not want to see that movie sober. Maybe I should have listened to you on this one, too, I gotta say. All righty, we're talking about, no further ado, uh, Tim Burton's Big Bang adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, which... I believe is about to gross $112 million this weekend, reaping the family dry of its hard-earned money, I gotta say. Well, if you go see 3D, which I never suggest. Oh yeah, like, (laughs) that's what, $15? You know, I I never understood this, okay? This is one of the reasons why the American economy is in dire straits, I gotta say, Michael. Because when I went to see Up, there was a family who clearly was not you know uh from westwood and in rich posh shape but somehow the american consumer still thinks it's okay to pay 1650 a ticket uh for the entire family of six to go see up in 3d how how is that so i paid 17 for alice and crazy heart yesterday yeah it's really or if you go to our favorite theater the ghetto theater as you would say you could see them both in like eight weeks for four dollars yeah. And get like 17 $1 hot dogs and it would just be the same oh, price. Those were good hot dogs. All right, we're going to talk. Ooh, we're going to talk. <laughs> I just, you know, I wanted to tell you they were like sitting out, like outside a refrigerator. Oh, and you, like, you, <laughs> they just look gross. But any, there is a reason they're $1, right? But yeah. no. Because <laughs> they send them from the other theaters when they're bad. They come with you the movies. You know what would be funny is if you went to, I know Food Inc. played at that theater. And if you went to see <laughs> Food Inc. while you were chomping into a subsidized, one dollar hot dog at any rate we're going to talk about alice in wonderland uh, tim burton's latest and it's probably his craziest most bizarre uh, but that's really insignificant because this movie just plain sucks i don't care if it's weird it just sucks don't you agree michael um i could best describe it as the combination of several of lewis carroll stories just and then the syringe of Tim Burton just being injected into it. Yeah, it's really not the Alice in Wonderland you knew as a kid. In fact, here, Alice, who's played by a great Austra- young Australian actress who was in this great movie called That Evening Sun with Hal Holbrook last year. Her name is Mia Wasikowska, and she plays Alice, who's 19. And Alice has been to Wonderland many a time before, but she doesn't know it. And during her engagement party, unbeknownst to her, uh, she's, uh, you know kind of cordoned into a proposal, but uh, she follows the white rabbit down the rabbit hole in this visually spectacular sequence, which I'm sure would be probably pretty good in 3D. You're a big detractor of 3D, but I gotta say... I don't like 3D, but when I thought about it, you know, I saw instances where I thought it would look cool. That probably would have been a cool sequence. But on the whole, no, this movie was a really bad choice. And even so, we gotta question ourselves. Like, I think we're more unbiased judges of this movie having seen it in 2D Because, you know, in Transformers and things and all these CGI movies, we always say the visuals don't make the movie. You should ignore the visuals. You should think about the story. And all these visuals, you know, they don't... I mean, Transformers would be a masterpiece if it was about CGI. So why is 3D any different? 
I, I can't agree more. Uh, I, I find 3D to be the kind of medium for if you can't put yourself in the movie, well, we're just going to make the movie come to you now. Yeah, it's modern day colorization, I think. I yeah. mean, it's, it's just... Uh, and But nobody... I don't think anybody ever liked colorization. Why do they like 3D? <laughs> I, you know, I don't even know that the viewer likes 3D. I think they just feel obligated to see it in 3D because they're shoving it down Because it's there, yeah. It's, you know, it's... But at any rate, Alice goes down to Wonderland, and it's kind of a very drab Wonderland because the Red Queen, who's played by Tim Burton's wife, Helena Bottom Carter, has kind of taken all the joy out of the outskirts, and our rebels, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, the Mad Hatter, etc., are kind of foraging for themselves in this drab land. And I gotta, I gotta say, can you imagine seeing that in 3D with those glasses? I mean, it dims the image, and well, not I mean, even that is just boring this is just yeah i mean it's visually uninteresting this is probably the most expensive movie that's been this boring i think i i i'm having trouble understanding what what the critics and fans are pointing out as like what stands out as being so fantastically visual about this movie because there's very few instances that i felt like it yeah the, the rabbit hole sequence stands out some of the ones in the red queen's kingdom i think are pretty impressive but even, like not even with 3d just like in a general visual moment i was just like yeah, a lot of dark. A lot of. I mean, they recorded this on green screens, and it's like it couldn't have found something more. You know, he goes. For, I could have put like a really crude, like '80s car scene behind them, and it would be more interesting. Now that would be something if we took the raw green screen footage and we put random backgrounds around them. That would be like a good late show gig. But anyway, the Mad Hatter is played by Johnny Depp, and I gotta say, Michael, I think this is Johnny Depp's worst performance in ages. It's just, like, I never thought that Johnny Depp could be, as you say, boring. I I think Johnny Depp, um, the girl who played Alice, it's just all like, what kind of direction were they given? Marching to... along. Because what was her direction? Just be plaster-faced through the whole movie and never show emotion? Because she didn't. Yeah, she's and, really stark. And I'm so sad about that. And you can't understand actress. what Johnny Depp is saying. Yeah, Okay, I get he's supposed to be crazy, but he switches to like this really bad Scottish accent at times. And I'm really lost as to how this is an improvement on the Mad Hatter. It makes you really rethink Johnny Depp's appeal because he often does things like this, but he's usually charming at least. Like here he's just... Who cares? I mean, that's that's really the overwhelming sense I felt in the movie is who the hell cares? Yeah. And of course, it, I, I believe I took a note on that. I was just like, uh, why really? Why is something I wrote? It's just like I couldn't understand why I was there anymore. I would say that's about the most accurate thing. And that only gets, you know, that emotion only becomes more pervading in your psyche when the thing reaches a very Chronicles of Narnia 2 like finale, which is just full of action. It was. <laughs> I couldn't. I wouldn't say I was gonna agree, but there, there's so for it's like you know all this action that's you know building up to that never happens. You know, I'm getting the sense that this is really boring because we agree. No, I know we 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 need to find movies we disagree on. Well, why don't you talk a little about the ending because you know I, I'm I'm just saying well, these it, things you're yeah. agreeing. So let, let's well, give you the mic. The, okay, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. This is a rare moment, children. No, uh, no. <laughs> The, the movie gets, like, all built up on this whole climactic uh, scene where we're going to have the champion who's played by Alice for the White Queen and the Jabberwocky for the Red Queen. And it's like, you know, that's what the whole movie is building towards is Alice is not Alice, but we need her to be Alice so she can be the champion. We get there, and it's it's they have their whole army. 
Then the two of them fight. Then the couple more people fight. And before you know it, it's over. She, okay, she kills Jabberwocky. And then... Oh, spoiler! (laughs) Who knew? And then they're like, okay, we're banishing you to, you know, another place, and that's it. It was the... I mean, I thought at least I was going to see some cool CGI, you know, fight scene at least. And that, they didn't even deliver on that. I completely agree with you. I defer to you. Thank you. All right. Well, ratings, I give it one and a half buckets out of four. Uh, one. 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 Such a cold one. Not even the extra. You know what I, you know I kind of liked, though? I like Danny Elfman's score. No? Uh, Do you agree? Was, Just score okay. was okay. I, I feel like uh, Tim Burton's kind of reached the point that... Uh, George Lucas has reached, or he just does enough on his movies that he has complete creative control, and doesn't seem like anyone's telling him, "Gee, uh, Tim, that's a really bad yeah, idea. You should do that." This was just, you know, terrible because from the start. Can you? I mean, you got, couldn't just, have changed one element and made this a good. Movie. Oh no, but I'm just saying that that he, someone just needs to tell him, "No, that's not a good idea." Once I, or twice. I agree. Uh, because you know, it's Johnny Depp again, it's Helena Bonham Carter again, it's Danny Elfman again, it's a, a normal story that we've heard before with Tim Burton injected into it. But I like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Didn't you like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? I mean, uh, that I, I'm fun. I'm quite partial to the original, but I understand why I'm, one could like it. Why one could like it, I understand that it was a lot more like the book. Yeah, it was you know, I thought that had energy. This has But no- I just like Gene Wilder, you know, I can't get beyond that. It's like everybody's walking around on clonopin and like just you know But anyway, Alice in Wonderland is a complete trade rack. Avoid it, avoid it, avoid it, especially in three D. Next up, Michael, we got something that I think is even more interesting than Alice in Wonderland. Since our rant about Ultrastar, a couple of people have reached out to us. One being a projectionist at Ultrastar, an Ultrastar location. Uh, he wants anonymity. How do you say that word? Anonymity. Anonymity. That, that's a good pronunciation. See, you're my pronunciation wizard. Uh, he wants anonymity. And- anonymity. <laughs> so we're just going to be calling him Bob, okay? But we're going to be talking about the process. Ultrastar has not responded, even though they clearly know my complaints. They have ignored them. I sent a certified mail letter, which you can see online with this bucket cast at bucketreviews.com. And they signed for it. It's certified. It's been delivered to Ultrastar headquarters. We've also tweeted and retweeted this podcast from last week. You can hear my objections to Ultrastar and Michael's on last week's podcast. But today, we're going to be talking to a projectionist, getting into the operations, and seeing what's going on. What's fucking up the presentation at Ultrastar? Jeez, I'm swearing again. What's up with that? Michael's told me not to swear. But I, I get very passionate about Ultrastar. I, I'll, I'll let you swear when we talk about Ultrastar. I get re- <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good idea. But what's screwing up the presentation at Ultrastar? We're going to be talking to Bob. Bobby, there. Yes, yes, I am. So, uh, Bob, I understand that you were once a projectionist for Ultrastar movies? Yeah, I was at one point. Uh, how old were you when you joined the Ultrastar uh, regime, as it is? Uh, I was about 19. All right, so a relatively young employee, but probably the average age of Ultrastar. And uh, what location did you work at, if you don't mind me asking? What voca- location? Yeah, what Ultrastar location? Uh, the Costa Ultrastar. Oh, La Costa, great. Uh, and how how long did you work there? I worked there for about three months over a summer. Oh, just three months. So were you hired directly to projection? 
Um, I was hired as an usher and then trained for about two weeks, and then I just took over like the daily projectionist job. Really, that's fascinating. What, what was the what was the training process like? I mean, uh, how how much training was there? I know at AMC we had uh, probably fifteen hours of composite training and projection, but we were doing film, of course. I wouldn't even really call it training so much as I just kind of followed it around their current projectionist and watched him do the work. See, the so what's the process? No, there's a huge problem with Ultrastar in the sense for a projectionist, it's easy as hell. Because, yeah, because it's digital. Yeah, it's all digital. And a big problem with that, too, is since it's all on lockdown, we, the people, you know, the, the projectionists can't do anything with the machines except for pressing oh, buttons really? to go. So, is it just as simple as hitting play? Yeah, basically. It's like we, we have very, very small amount of troubleshooting we can do if anything goes wrong. And we just sit up there, press play, and resume if anything kind mm-hmm. of stops. How many projectionists does a location have in general, like La Costa, for instance? Um, like at the time, well, before I was hired there, I think there was only really one. And then I got hired... And they had me do it during the day because normally they had the um, managers doing it. And I guess the managers mm-hmm. enough that they didn't want to do it anymore. Yeah, so the managers – that's interesting because if the managers can't do it well, I mean, <laughs> who can? Uh, so just tell me, like, what is your knowledge of these machines? I mean, how much were you told? Are these 2K projectors, 4K projectors? Do they even get, get into that? Like, I, I don't really remember that much, but they, they really didn't give us any information. Like, the one time I got kind of screwed with having to fix something that was, you know, more than resume the movie at point B, like the last checkpoint, essentially. Really? Was, so, l- let me just get this straight. Yeah. For us that don't know, I mean, we're, we're just, you know, I've, I'm only versed in 35 millimeters, so... With the digital, are you literally, like, using it like a, a computer playing a DVD, almost? Yeah, basically, there's a computer interface uh, for that. Um, the normal user login for the projectionist basically has only play and resume from some checkpoint, and I don't think we ever can hmm. lo- load stuff through that interface. So you're not, like, taught, like, DTS sound, whatever. I, I mean, I know I had to memorize about a 100-page book in the AMC projection training, for instance. This is really baffling to me. Yeah, no, they they didn't even give us that. It was really just simplistic, you know. Uh, like the the funny thing is when I was interviewed and I was I had come in saying, you know, I'm at the time I was a biochemistry major and I still have a very strong interest in computers, and so uh-huh. so that's kind of what got me the job, almost. Yeah. Like, oh wow, you're you know you you're good with technology. You want to be a projectionist. And it turns out like yeah. I didn't need anything for that. Honestly, I, I could have been a dumb, mon- blind monkey, and I could have done, done it. So really, that that's fascinating. <laughs> uh, and, and so, okay, the major thing, the major problem I've had with Ultrastar is that they're running movies in the wrong format constantly. Mm-hmm. Because uh, okay, so first of all, how are you taught between you know the distinction between scope and flat one eight five and two three five? From what I remember, it was kind of covered for a few, like, seconds, you know. Mm-hmm. Nothing really involved with it. I don't remember it to this day, so obviously. Now, is that is that preset by a manager? So, in other words, you're not, like, going in and altering it every show and checking that every show? Um, it, uh, it should have been actually set with the, the 
the projector when they load it on. They they go yeah through, when they load the hard drive. Yeah, they, Interesting. they go ahead and do all the settings for the thing. So so if I'm seeing uh, a movie and it's in the wrong format, there. I mean, at La Costa, it's happened several times. At Del Mar, even more. If I am um, seeing it in the wrong format, are you saying that it's probably been that way since the movie was loaded? Uh, very likely. That's fascinating. Now, are you, uh, say you saw some projection problem, say there was, you know, text, uh, as is the case in a format issue, say the movie is scope and it's zooming into flat because the format is set incorrectly. What's the, what's the chances that a projectionist is going to pipe up and actually say something if there's maybe a little text off screen or something like that for quality control? Uh, I honestly don't remember what I would have done. I probably would have ended up screwing around with it and seeing if I could figure it out myself because hey, I don't think they even really had manuals for these things. Really? Okay. Like, I, and... I think they had they had manuals for the the machine because there's kind of it, the machine was made up of a like the actual projector, which had settings mm -hmm. on the back through buttons, and then a almost server computer which you had loaded your hard drives onto. And so most of the stuff was controlled through the server computer, but yeah. you could manually change stuff on the machine itself, except for sometimes it didn't work. Now, did but, you, if, if you don't mind me asking, did you work under Jerry as a manager, or was it Gina at that point? I was uh, under Gina. Oh, interesting. Now, that's, uh, I think things have seemed to have gone downhill uh, since then, but I'm curious... Again, on the aspect ratio, uh, Ultrastar has side masking, meaning for a scope presentation, uh, or at the La Costa location at least, for a scope presentation, uh, the, the screen expands on the sides and creates a bigger image. Mm -hmm. uh, that's at least how the screens were built. But lately, I've been seeing a lot of black bars. So in other words, they're using a flat-fitted screen and then letterboxing a scope image in there. Uh, so did, was this common practice to have like a letterboxed image on that flat screen or were you guys bringing out the masking for scope? Um, I honestly don't remember. It's been a long time and most of this stuff has flown out of my head. So I, I can't. So it, it, <laughs> it, it wasn't a very memorable experience. I can tell. Yeah, I mean, no, uh, the, like, again, it, it was really just mostly me sitting up there press, pressing a button every 15 minutes. Like the, and the I've heard whole highlight of that summer was when we got one 35 millimeter film where I actually had to, you know, do something for it. Oh, you actually had to do that. Now, how, how was that? Uh, that was a lot more interesting, like being uh, keeping an eye on it and actually switching it. And but were you able to do uh, like daily operations with that? Did they train you adequately for that? Oh, yeah, that, that actually I got a lot, a lot more information. And like the first time, like when I first started there with the training. He ended up going over that like yeah. briefly, and then once we got the film uh, for it, he he kind of went into more detail, and so I was able to you know splice stuff in and out if I needed to, and uh, hmm. essentially set it up because it was a lot more manual than just you know press the so button. So I'm I'm getting that digital is like putting them on autopilot, basically. Oh yeah, I mean, they're like, just not. And I would go as far to say it's not completely the uh, the management's fault because they would get yelled at if they went in to actually like manually fix anything on the uh, projector. Some of the uh, managers mm -hmm. had uh, system administrator passwords that I don't mm -hmm. remember how they got them, but they did. 
And so they'd go and fix, try to fix something, and the company would call them and tell them to get out of it. That seems insane. All right, yeah, uh, Michael's like was, got was, some... Like, I understand the point is obviously to protect against stealing movies, but it was so ridiculous that... Yeah, like, piracy is a concern, but it just seems crazy that the manager of a facility can't do anything to fix it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, that's it was, nuts. And I, I mean, I, I don't have the proper information saying like exactly what settings we could do as a user mm-hmm. versus that as an admin. But I do remember yeah. is there's a significant, like, larger amount of stuff you could do in that administrator panel than you could do with a, the simple as a user hmm. panel. All right, Bob, Michael's got some questions for you. So this begs the question, uh, what did you do in your free time once you weren't, uh, once you started the movies? Because, you know, with 35mm, you kind of got to watch all of them. But since you press play and walk away, what did you do for an eight-hour shift? Well, initially, I, I would sit there and kind of observe movies and half-watch them while I was waiting for my next one. And that kind of got old after the, you know, you've seen all of the movies how many times? I, I don't even remember. And I so, like, I got to a point where I was starting to bring my computer just to kind of entertain myself while I was there. And they allowed that? Wait, whoa, 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 whoa. They allowed that? Well, I was sitting up there, you know, as long as the, the movies were started on time, you know, I didn't have anything else to do. The place was clean. I was just sitting on my ass. Don't ask, don't tell. Oh, my God. Well, it, it, I, was, I, it was ridiculous, but at the same time, like, we had enough ushers on hand. Like, if I needed to come down and help clean up a theater, they'd come ask me. I'd get up off my computer and come down and do it. Like, there's never a case of me not, uh, you know, refusing yeah, do you to ha- work. But if you're just having yeah. so much downtime. Did you ever have to, like, is there any maintenance involved with the digital projectors? Are you cleaning them at all or anything like that? Can't touch them. Huh. They they had to call in someone else from like the natural like technician and we, we couldn't do any of that. I'm having trouble just understanding why you would even need projectionists at uh theaters like Ultrastar if there's nothing to do except hit. Yeah, play. it was kind of a little bit puzzling. I guess again it was so that the managers could be downstairs uh, you know, whip cracking their whips on the high school kids that don't do anything as ushers. <laughs> So that, well, that that is understandable. I will, yeah, I will like say it, that. It was weird when I was probably one of the oldest people there, and I was 19. <laughs> well, this is why Exhibition is falling down, and it's it's no wonder, Michael, why uh, we're experiencing problems with Ultrastar. They still have not answered my letter, by the way. They still have not answered this podcast. I've sent them a letter via certified mail. Now, Bob, did you get any impression of, like, what corporate was like other than saying, you know, you can't touch the projector or whatever? I mean, uh, they seem to just not answer any of my concerns as a customer. Well, corporate kind of had a uh, bad rap throughout all the uh, employees at the place. Like, uh-huh. no one liked it when they came. They were a bunch of jerks, essentially. I guess they originally were based out of uh, La Costa's ultrasound yeah. there for a while. And so they were kind of spoken with the hushed tones and the uh, we don't like them at all. And the few people I met from it just were not really nice. Well, it's been an illuminating experience, Bob. Say the least. Uh, we may go and confront the bigwigs at uh, the Vista headquarters and. Thanks for appearing on the Bucket Cast. It's been great. Okay, thank you. All right, next up on the show, we're going to be talking Oscar. It's only fitting since the Oscars are tomorrow or today or in the in the past, depending on when you're listening to this. 
Uh, but first up, we're going to be talking about the Oscar shorts. Michael and I will be reviewing the animated shorts this week. We'll do the live action next week. Now, why is that? You might be wondering, you know, that's kind of not timely. The Oscars are tomorrow. Well, the shorts are more relevant than ever in our lives now because you can get them via cable video on demand. You can watch them in beautiful HD right on your home television set. And, you know, I think the animated shorts this year are a pretty good crop, Michael. I'd say it's well worth the five ninety nine. Five ninety nine. It's about 90, 90 minutes worth of footage. Uh, it's And it's pretty good pretty stuff. Pretty good stuff. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and really, they've been showing this thing in limited release in theaters for years. And I think it, it could, actually, it should be what the, uh, what do you call kindergoths, as you say, uh, should be interested in rather than this Tim Burton, Alice in Wonderland crap because these are truly morose, some of them, but they're very visually dazzling and interesting, I thought. I think it's uh, something that we all should, you know, look for more often instead of just like, because every time the Oscars roll around, it's like, here are the shorts and you never know what they are. Yeah, <laughs> now you can actually play along at home. And also the fact that, so many of these shorts look great. They're re clearly really expensive, so we should give them a way to make money because I, I fear that uh, without, you know, these socialized countries where arts get lots of funding, uh, you know, it's going to be Pixar making shorts and that's it. Notice <laughs> that not many of these shorts are from America. In fact, I don't think a single one on the... Uh, uh... With the absence of Pixar, yeah, there's not a single American short in the animated lineup this year which is what we're going to be covering this week again live action will be next week so michael just get us rolling out of the five which is your favorite um my favorite's gonna be the lady and the reaper which is from spain la dama y la muerte for those of you who speak espanol yeah i, I didn't get to do that in high school yeah all right <laughs> I, I thought it was one of the ones that like looked the greatest. Oh, oh yeah, that opening shot of the windy thing. It was incredible. I was blown away. I was like, wow. Um, and I think that's a big theme you'll be seeing with these shorts is a lot of people think naturally this is low budget bill. This is like the poor man's Oscars. I think it's like very, uh, very concentrated. Like, you know, yeah. here is our best work distilled down to... 10 minutes worth of footage. I think a lot of people don't give short films a try, which is ironic because Americans have such low attention spans. <laughs> it might actually work for some people. But, you know, short films aren't something that's integrated in the everyday moviegoer's diet. And I admit, I'm I'm not one to watch short films regularly, but this makes me think I should. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I really like this too. It's my favorite as well. So you uh, give them the pitch. Um, well, basically, it's this this grandmother, we... we we see her, her husband's passed on, and she's just longing for him. And she goes to sleep one night, and death comes to collect her soul. And he's, as he's taking her away, she's brought back to life by this heroic young doctor who has four buxom nurses with him. And so it's this battle between death and the doctor trying to, you know, save or, you know, take her to the next world. Yeah, it becomes like an action spectacle of the Grim Reaper, essentially, versus... Uh, this doctor, this very type A, typical doctor that's spazzing. And, you know, there are some really amazing action uh, skits in here, not the least of which is when Death and the doctor are essentially fighting and going up and down stairs like a heart <laughs> monitor. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's my favorite shot in the whole film. It's, it's just, I mean, it's visually eye-popping. That and... Uh... I love the end. I love the end with 
death. It's when shocking. He goes to his home. It's great. It's I mean, it's it's wonderful. So and what produced by Antonio Banderas? We saw. Yeah, it's like whoa, hello. So we recommend La Dama y la Muerte. Oh. Or, <laughs> oh, the lady. or in Spanish, Michael. <laughs> the the lady and that. the reaper. Yeah, so uh, that's a good one. And that would be my personal pick to win. But the movie that I think is going to win is called uh, Matter of Loaf and Death. Just by virtue of popularity, this is the latest Wallace and Gromit short. Uh, it's actually, even for Wallace and Gromit, kind of dark. This is a recurrent theme. Baby. Yeah, what, what you'll notice with... Every single one of these uh, shorts is they're all very dark in their story. And actually only one of them is dark in its tone. But Wallace and Gromit, um, it's got a lot of, uh, you know, cute jokes and references going for it. Um, you might see some from, you know, aliens and stuff like that. A few horror movies. Yeah, there's a lot of, of referential stuff. Yeah, especially horror movies. There's even some references that I know are references, <laughs> but I didn't quite get what they were. It's like jolly toned, but it becomes, I won't give anything away as far as the plot's concerned, but it becomes a very morose tale of Wallace and Gromit. Uh, Wallace basically falls in love with this woman who has an interesting past with bakers. In this one, Wallace and Gromit are baking bread. Uh, isn't it interesting, Michael? I just picked up on this. Gromit doesn't have a mouth. I found yeah. out, found his, and that almost adds to his level of expression because yeah. we like project our own expressions onto him, and it's not quite the easy animated thing. And and you know, always with you know this type of thing or anything that's claymation, it's just unbelievable the patience they have to create these mind blowing action sequences. Oh, it's commendable purely on the craft of being claymation. And we were trying to figure out how they did the steam, if it's post production or what there's this steam that comes off the baking bread and it's really great and there's a shadow in this stained glass window on a Wallace and Gromit's door and these yeah. in intricacies that are just amazing. So I give that one oh by the way, uh, La Dama y la Muerte gets uh three and a half buckets out of four from me. It got four from me. And um, A Matter of Loaf and Death for me, this one, the Wallace and Gromit one, gets three out of four from me. This was uh, three and a half for me, and this was my uh, second favorite under uh, The Lady and the Reaper. Yeah, mine too. Do you think this one's going to win, or do you have a different um, pick to win? I think it's probably going to win uh, purely because it's kind of like Wallace and Gromit. I think that people kind of have a soft spot in their heart for Wallace and Gromit. Uh -huh. um, and I, I wouldn't feel like terrible. I wouldn't feel slighted that The Lady and the Reaper didn't win. It's not like it's the worst one. <laughs> I think the competition is really between those two, but there's an outlying shot that Lagorama from France could win just by virtue of the Academy's willingness to give liberal politics their say, kind of. It's a very anti-corporate uh, animated short film about uh, basically just corporations taking over all the people and property in America and how corporations rule our lives. Everything is done through corporate logos like McDonald's to KFC to Carl's Jr. to Bluetooth to Microsoft to Apple to blah, 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 blah. So everything is done and it's very interesting on a design level purely. A lot of the images are inventive, but it's really one note, I thought. you know, It's, it's, it's one note. And it, it probably goes a little bit longer than it should. And I don't really understand exactly what they're going for because they, 
they kind of go for this mix of like South Park and Grand Theft Auto to show, you know, there's a lot of swearing and it's the only film, despite the fact that the other films are really morose, it's the only film to carry a warning because yeah. people, people might, you know, uh, take their kids thinking it's animated and uh, <laughs> there's a lot of swearing and stuff almost to show how, how corrupt corporations have made us and how nihilistic corporations have made us, et cetera, et cetera. But it, it just didn't work for me. It just seemed so one-dimensional as a statement movie. And that's the worst kind of statement movie because it's just blatant. I, I think probably my favorite part from that one was when we you know pulled out from Earth. We saw... Corporations know, ruling the universe? Well, I just thought I liked the design scheme the most at that point and i felt it worked really well because they built each planet with you know oh yeah jupiter's moons were all like little logos a very pretty and very creative visual experience but not much else i kind of feel like it kind of pulled the punch on the message like it might be a diagram you might make for some 10th grade art project (laughs) and get a real good review on but as a as a short film uh i mean i think it's what 15 minutes it's just kind of painful in its length i i don't know uh so that could win but i'm really thinking a matter of loaf and death will win uh the next up which doesn't really have a shot is the very light film again from france called french roast um i at first thought it was kind of a darker version of ratatouille but it's (laughs) it's completely different uh french roast is the story of this man he's in a uh, in a coffee shop just you know having coffee smoking a cigar and this disheveled old man who's actually got a swarm of flies following him walks in asks for money and a hobo to, a know, hobo michael you don't have to this is like pc here a disheveled man what <laughs> ask for money <laughs> but, okay but, <laughs> anyways uh we find out that the man who's been drinking his coffee has zero money he forgot his wallet and it's all about him trying to you know, you know, make time to find money. So he keeps ordering coffee and tries to steal money from little old ladies. And it's an entertaining farce, but not much more. Um, yeah, it it's it looks nice, but story. Yeah, great and, look, great character design. But it's not. I, I, I like unlike uh, the the logo movie. Um, Logorama, Yeah, it didn't overextend itself. It it kind of knew where its story was and operated within that. Where the other one. Too far. Oh, I guess you would pronounce it Logo Rama. Logo Rama, yeah. Yeah, I've been pronouncing it Logo Rama just phonetically, but I, I finally got that. Thanks. Uh, no, no. I know. Uh, I'm here to help you pronounce things. Remember? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no, I give it three stars. I think French roast is deserving of the three stars. It's it's basically got the same amount of material as Wallace and Gromit, but doesn't feel as substantial because it's not 30 minutes long. This is only, I think, eight minutes long. It's a short one, yeah, but uh, three three out of four for me as well. Oh, by the way, we didn't give our logo, logo Rama ratings. I gave it one and a half. Um, I gave it two. Okay, uh, and then the last one is a movie that I don't think either of us really liked. Movie, I don't know, short film. I guess it's a movie. It's called Granny O'Grimm's Sleeping Beauty, in which a grandmother tells her granddaughter a really enthusiastic, morose version of Sleeping Beauty at bedtime, almost as if she's uh, drunk, because, you know, this is Ireland, of course, but but never is alcoholism hinted at as the culprit as to why she's <laughs> going on in this. I just I didn't like get it. I felt like she supposed to have like a personal connection to the story she was telling, but they never really elaborated on it. I didn't get it. Yeah. Um, I just, 
wasn't very involved in and in the program you know it's not as well liked by the programmers because it's just kind of stuck in the middle somewhere there there's no real uh you know connection to yeah. anything um and then also in this program which you get on video on demand or in certain cities you can still see in theaters most of the theatrical runs have ended but you can definitely check it out with your standard cable box pay-per-view uh it comes with two other shorts because you know they want to give this program a nice feature length but they're they're, they're kind of like the other ones that were in the running like yeah honorable mentions basically uh the first one's called uh, runaway from canada and it's basically what that suggests, a runaway train. But this one, again, is really, really morose, don't you think, Michael? Um, to say the least, it's very, very morose. Um, I don't want to spoil it, but this thing ends in lots of flames, quite literally. Uh, it's just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I liked the movie. I thought it was kind of interesting. It's basically uh, cars on a train. The conductor of the train is disappeared into a quickie i guess as we find out later uh but cars on a train are continually falling off and And it's uh, meeting their decline uh, the coal shoveler trying to save the train from doom yeah but i thought it was interesting and it's the only you know it's kind of done with a picture book type design uh, almost like a pop-out i I thought it was like the more like traditional uh, looking one yeah all these movies the like look so expensive and great that it was kind of nice to see one that was more true i mean other than uh, the wallace and gromit movie uh which is of course claymation this is the most traditional looking of the bunch and that's kind of welcome i mean I, I i liked it i gave it three out of four i gave it two and a half and i kind of chalked that up to the fact that it had dialogue uh-huh. it was just so difficult to hear it and i mean maybe that was a, a choice but i could hear that they were actually saying things yeah but it wasn't loud enough within the recording. Well, it wasn't my beautiful sound system. Which no, I no, I would never say that. No, no. Uh, and then, Michael, you really liked another one which should have been in the place of Logo Rama or Granny O'Grimm's Sleeping Beauty. It's called The Kinematograph. Um, I think this one probably had, like, my favorite art scheme out of all of them. It had the – all the characters and everything looked like they had been cut from wood. Uh-huh. And I felt that stood out more than anything else that we'd seen that night uh, tonight. Um, it's about an inventor who's trying to create basically the moving picture with sound, but we find out you know his wife is very ill, and it's just about you know his brief trials and tribulations trying to get over the uh, hill and his design. Yeah. Probably the most emotional of the bunch, certainly. It's, Definitely it's... the one with the the actual dark tone too much the dark story yeah i mean these ones i don't yeah of course because the other ones are just so like uppity in their darkness yeah. it's which i understand especially in uh because i don't know the english title because i you know can't translate spanish on the fly la dama y la mujer uh, but, but uh you know that one was the one where it's kind of fitting especially with the whole well that was kind of like laughing Latin at death. culture and things like that uh but yeah, this one's definitely got the darkness to match the, uh, in terms of tone, to match the darkness in the story. And that's not a bad thing. I, I liked it quite a bit. I gave it three out of four. I gave it three and a half. And if it had been the running, that would probably be over a uh, French roast yeah. in my top three. Certainly. So uh, I definitely got to say this is a good bunch to watch. I recommend it on the whole. I think you're definitely in agreement. You even mm-hmm. like them more than me. So... Definitely check those out, and if you're playing an Oscar prediction game, 
I would definitely bet on a matter of loaf and death to win this one because Wallace and Gromit just have the reputation and the appeal. I couldn't agree more. All right. Uh, so some other Oscar business to do. A lot of times, you know, one of the big things about the Oscars is that they give a lot of smaller movies uh, exposure because especially older folks go to see movies because they're nominated for Oscars. Now, they probably aren't going and rushing to see The White Ribbon or any of the foreign film nominees, but The Hurt Locker, for one, is getting a lot of play on DVD, has been topping the charts on DVD and Blu-ray. And I feel like the most accessible of the bunch in theaters is a movie called Crazy Heart, which is nominated for Best Actor, Jeff Bridges, which I think it'll win, Best Supporting Actress, Maggie Gyllenhaal, and in another category, it'll probably win Best Song, The Weary Kind, which is done by Ryan Bingham and T-Bone Burnett, who did the music for the movie. And it's essentially about a washed-up old country. It's kind of like the wrestler light as applied to country music. Yeah. Uh, it's this year's wrestler, essentially, which means nothing more than it's kind of a cliche story with a powerhouse lead performance. Actually, a lot of powerhouse performances, I think. Um, I, I, I kind of, this kind of falls under my... Uh style over substance argument that like well it's nothing startlingly new in story it's just done so well and the acting is so top-notch that you kind of look beyond it yeah at some, least i did i yeah. know you sometimes were... <laughs> it was really really hard for me just as i thought i was getting into the movie which is full of great things and i'll get into why it works with michael a little bit later here but i just every time i felt like i was just getting into it i was Hit in the face with a cliche. This movie, among other things, has a down and out but once great artist struggling to reach his prime again. Two, an unlikely relationship between the main characters that just feels right in the way that happenstance can only allow. Three, a scene of great epiphany for the viewer in an aquarium, which actually is more popular than you would think. If you want to see something done well, look at the last scene of Bad Lieutenant Port of Call New Orleans where... Werner Herzog pulls that one. Uh, a sequence in which a child is lost at a climactic moment and we fear. And three, er, five, five, fifth cliche, an inevitable comeback that seems in the works for a long time. So those things kept kind of taking me out of the movie. But it's so good in so many ways that I recommend it just like you do. Uh, let's get into what we like about this movie uh, one of the things that I like and that kept me away from, you know, really hating on the cliches is that instead of just functioning as a simple comeback story for the protagonist, Bad Blake, who's, uh, you know, a country star of yesteryear and is now very much like Mickey Rourke's Randy the Ram, uh, playing small venues. And despite the fact that he still has an agent who's a bit of a hothead and wannabe bigwig still drives himself everywhere in his old pickup truck uh instead of just functioning as his comeback story as a lot of movies like this do the movie shows us a portrait a vivid portrait much thanks to jeff bridge's performance which will win the oscar an alcoholic and his struggles his denial his just the misery of what's at the core of his life uh, without really giving away too much also his road to recovery, which I think is where the real arc of the story lies. Um, I mean, the, the whole like heart of the movie is, I mean, rests on his you know, road to recovery, but you look at the, the, the supporting cast and unlike um, 
the wrestler where it seemed like the world was still kind of against him. Uh-huh. You, you have everyone in the story more or less rooting for him. They want him to come yeah. back. Yeah, unlike the wrestler, this is not a depressing movie, even though it's full of depressing things. I mean, there's alcoholism, there's, uh, you know, abandoned children, there's... There's all these things. There's epiphanies in aquariums. <laughs> no, 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 no. Well, in the abandoned children thing, I was more referring to the line with his son. But, uh, uh, you know. Oh, there's another one. A, a, a father who's been distant from his son for years. How could I forget that years, one? Years, like his uh, whole life. Yeah, but, yeah, abandoned him at a young age. So there's another one. Slap me in the face again. But uh, it's – I think so too. And the supporting performances are amazing. I mean Maggie Gyllenhaal – Jeff Bridges is dominating all this Oscar talk, but Maggie freaking Gyllenhaal just gives a powerhouse here. I mean, I got to say, Monique, who gave a brilliant performance of Precious, I mean, just heart-wrenching. She's won everything. Please, people. I, I mean, if Maggie Gyllenhaal could walk home with that golden statue tomorrow, that would just be amazing. I mean, she's so good. Well, you, you can't forget, you know, some of the smaller performances – Colin Farrell was amazing. Who just sheds his image. Like, I mean, you just, you expect, you kind of half expect him to be like wavering in and out of that strong Irish accent. And yet yeah. he gives you the most believable country he, music star. Like, yeah, just big, big star. And makes, but down to earth at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and makes a real impression. The other thing I really like with him, Colin Farrell plays kind of the old buddy uh, of Jeff Bridges' Bad Blake, who... Bad Blake kind of taught him everything he knows. At least that's what we're given the impression of. I really liked that Colin Farrell's not a villain. Like, there's so many that's movies... That's what stood out to me. Yeah, there's so many movies in which this character would just be evil. And instead of making it about that, it's about Bad Blake's own phobias about returning to perform with this guy who's actually a pretty good guy. Well, you know, he... Uh, Colin Farrell, uh, Tommy Sweet, Colin Farrell's character, yeah. you know, realizes his roots... He's completely thankful to Bad Blake, and he's trying, you know, trying to bring him back in, giving him deals like write songs for me, do a, you know, a CD with me, do a duet. But like you said, Bad Blake is so withdrawn, and like, uh -huh. you know, one more step, and he's like out of a career almost. Yeah, well, well, or out of a life, as we almost see in one scene. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, you know, that's kind of a cliche in and of itself, but again, it works. But ultimately, you know, he he gets it together he goes to you know yeah without rehab. giving away too much there's i think this is one of the best portrayals of recovery and alcoholism and it's just great in that way and another thing i really like is the way the movie looks i mean after just uh, even hurt locker as fitting as the shaky cam is for all that it's just great to see a movie that takes pride in nice slowed down shots that are well composed and uh just takes its time and gives you a nice portrait of the characters. It's, you know, really refreshing in an Oscar season where it's so much about Avatar and these quick cuts and show me, show me, show me. And this just, you know, I feel that's down. the kind of a, you know, almost the country style, like we're, you know, it's slowed down. If you, I'm thinking like no country for old men. Yeah. It shows you the pace of life, especially in the Southwest where it is. And, you know, speaking of crazy heart, we can't, we can't forget the music. Because it more or less makes the film. Yeah, the other thing, that's interesting because I think this movie is being seen especially by really elitist coastal audiences because it's an Oscar bait. It's more of a California and New York thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I think the movie's getting some decent play for Searchlight in the red states. 
But, you know, this is Oscar bait. So let's be frank. It's mostly upper class Jews going to see it. You know? um, Michael just turned a blind eye to that joke. But, you know, I think like I don't listen to country music at all, but I, I like the music a lot. And I think it's a way to introduce people to good country music. Uh, you know, T-Bone T Burnett is hardly, uh, you know, big and rich as far as audience is concerned. But it's I, definitely approachable. Yeah, I think it I think it shows us a lot of that. The other thing, another thing really that I noticed is even though this is cliched, I don't think it's a sentimental movie at all. You know, it doesn't go for the heartstrings right away. It's not shameless in that regard, which is nice because well, sometimes it's easier to be caught up in the Cinderella mans that go for both because they're tugging at your heartstrings all at once. Looking back at this, this is hardly the cliched movie in the emotional way. I never doubted that these were real people. Yeah, I felt like, you know, when it showed us uh, Bad Blake, it's kind of like, you know, here's a guy who's just down on his luck. It wasn't lo like, look how terrible his life is. Well, he and alcoholic. That... I mean, you know. Well, I mean, I mean but it didn't even play that up. It showed it later, just yeah. how bad it was. It didn't, like, show right off, like, but, his life sucks. And the great thing is we see the nuances there from the beginning, like that scene in which he dedicates the song to the, he's still functioning enough in alcoholic to remember these two people's names who at uh, the, a guy, a store owner, a liquor store owner asked him to de dedicate a song to he and his wife on stage. And he's still functioning enough that he can remember those names. But then uh, during the middle of the song, he suddenly leaves to go vomit. Um, I mean, I, I was a little bit startled by that. I thought they were kind of going to go just build him up as this terrible person. Yeah, who forgets the names and then there's the, you know. But uh, he's still like kind of at heart, you know, trying. I, yeah, I thought so too. And uh, also like the nuances in Jeff Bridges' performance, there's a moment in which it's amazing what he can convey because the viewer knows that Bad Blake's kind of relaxation on stage is all this seasoned, manufactured thing. And yet to the people in the audience who are seeing the exact same bridges, we know that they think it's genuine and real. So it has some interesting you know, commentary on how music can affect audiences and things. And also the women in Bad Blake's life, that's, you know, that accounts for, you know, not the least of which Maggie Gyllenhaal, but how he interacts with one woman at a concert he does. It's just great. Mm -hmm. I mean, so despite the convention, I really encourage you to see Crazy Heart. I give it three buckets out of four. Michael? Um, yeah, I think that's what, basically what I came to. I didn't write anything down. Oh, and you liked Bob Duvall, too. Uh, yeah, I thought, you know, like I said, the whole supporting cast. Well, it's purely focused on Jeff Bridges. Why am I calling him Bob Duvall? It's like it's like they keep <laughs> you're so, you're Jeff, so Jeff Bridges keeps calling him Bob. So I but yeah, you're so right you know buddy buddy with him that yeah, yeah so, you go fishing. But with go him. ahead, yeah. Uh, I I felt like the the supporting cast was really strong and it really didn't detract from his performance. It just built uh, Jeff Bridges up. Definitely one to see. I think Jeff Bridges will win the Oscar. Dare I say, I kind of want Jeremy Renner to win the Oscar. Well, you know where I stand, but it's, I think... It's just, it's tough think, to compare because Jeremy Renner's performance is so showy and so performancey. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of screaming and shouting and, you know, Bridges does probably as great a work. It's just more subdued and in a way tougher, but uh, it's less easy to latch on to. I'll just say that. I, I think they're both... Um, definitely deserving of the nomination i couldn't say it's just you know, because who of, deserves yeah. it more but um 
They both because be of the Hollywood politics, Bridges will win for his long career. He's never won an Oscar, and uh, you know, I mean, well deserved, I think. And if somebody can upset Maggie Gyllenhaal <laughs> or Anna Kendrick, I really like Anna Kendrick and Up in the Air too. Anybody but Monique. Although I love Monique in that role, it's just I don't really like Monique as a person. But that's our Oscar thing. Who do you think Hurt Locker is going to win Best Picture? I mean, I hate to go over the nominees because they're so predictable. I mean, I don't think any of us don't think it's going to be Bridges, Bullock, Waltz, Monique, and either Hurt Locker or Avatar. So, you know, I, I mean, it seems ridiculous to go over, but you got to pick for picture. I mean, I know you like Hurt Locker. The I, most, but... I know. I, yeah, I like Hurt Locker, but I feel like it's going to cop out and go to Avatar. It seems crazy to me that Hurt Locker could win because it grossed $12 million, and this is supposed to be a celebration of Hollywood. Although the Producers Guild which, you know, is business. I mean, what is producing but business uh, went to Hurt Locker. So we will see tomorrow. I think that Catherine Bigelow, who directed the Hurt Locker, is in, you know, definitely going to be the first female to take home the Direction Award. So uh, Hurt Locker should win big either way. Yeah. Uh, so we're awaiting the Oscars. I know you are. I hope you're listening to this beforehand. Well, it doesn't really matter, but I hope you find what we have to say on these subjects stimulating. Any other Oscar picks that... I think a serious man really. Sh- I uh, hope it gets some big play. That'd yeah. be cool. Um, you know, Christoph Waltz, looking for that. Yeah, and uh, I mean, again, a lot of these movies are good. I thought the year was kind of missing a lot of truly great movies, but you know, you can't really do. Uh, my objections to Up aside, I don't think you could really do poorly watching any of these nominees. And uh, no, I think they're all worth a, a watch when they all eventually make it out on DVD. So we're going to settle for generalizations because these picks all seem the same. Uh, <laughs> I know I, I'm really looking forward to White Ribbon, which is nominated for four. And a, like a profit too. A profit is getting some big buzz and may upset the White Ribbon with its momentum in the foreign film category, which would be crazy. But uh, yeah, we'll see you uh, next week. That's our Oscar wrap up. A little bit, you know, atypical, but I think, hey, you know, it's good uh, and uh, we're not reiterating what others have said. So, Michael, any last words? You can reach me now at michael at bucketreviews.com. If oh, you have yeah. any very specific questions. For him like, and him alone. And yeah. If, <laughs> I can't promise that I'll look at it between now Because damn and it, if you send me a message on his account, it's not going to get to me. Uh, no, it, it won't. Daniel, just trash it. In fact, you know, since I have control over that email address, I should just put Danny in the spam filter. So <laughs> just, uh, but if you have any more general questions about the website or questions for someone who's just less intellectually powerful, send them to webmaster at bucketreviews.com or you can always tweet us at bucketreviews. And also, we're going to have a Twitter for the show coming up soon and we'll toss that out as soon as we have it going. And until next time, this has been the Bucket Cast. I'm Danny Baldwin. I'm Michael Lester. And see you later, folks. We're on the front line. I get handed down the news. We're on the front line. Well, I never begin to choose. Just we're on the front line.